Didn't you love that song the choir sang this morning? That's one of my favorites. I don't remember the first time we heard it. It was in the van, and I remember thinking that day, we've got to get that to Pastor Steve, because I'm sure our choir could totally nail that one. And uh, when I walked in this morning before the service and they were rehearsing, I thought, I couldn't believe it. And uh, it just felt like a pep rally. felt like a homecoming game. And I went up to Jordan before the first service and I said, Jordan, I said, this feels like a homecoming game. And I don't know why with me, whenever I get excited about things of the Lord, it takes me back to the enthusiasm when I was a rugby player and I just want to hit someone. Just want to hit someone. But I'm too old now to hit people. And, uh, but it's that type of enthusiasm. They're just like, wow, this is awesome. Nothing can take away my joy. That's right. Let's go. Let's play. Right? And so it's great to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, at 7.30 this morning, you wouldn't know about it because you're the 11 o'clock crowd. But at 7.30 this morning, I had a problem with my front window. I couldn't see out because it was frosted over. Yeah. I opened the curtains and I said to my wife, I don't know if my eyes are getting bad or our neighbor's roofs all covered in frost. And it was frost. And then I turned on the van, two degrees registered on the dashboard this morning. But you know what? For hunting enthusiasts like myself and like Josh who got baptized this morning, we love this time of year. We absolutely love this time of year because we are filled with anticipation, but also there's a ton of preparation that we're involved in right now. And I know there's a group of men in our church. I won't mention them by name in case some of you are offended that we provide for our family in the way that we do. But there's a group of men in our church that uh, are heading off on Thursday for their annual moose hunt. And let me tell you, there's a lot of excitement going on. And in the midst of preparation, there's going to be a lot of this. Honey, do you know where I put this? Do you remember where I put this? And the reason hunting is so expensive because we never put things back when we're done and then we've got to buy another one the next year. And so that's what's going on in a lot of people's houses this week. But this time of year, we are filled with anticipation and preparation. Now, interestingly, over the last number of years, there's been this growing interest among outdoors people to return to using an ancient form of rifle called the flintlock muzzleloader. There's been this interesting growth and I'm just going to be honest with you right now. I believe the reason it's been such an interest in using muzzleloaders, this ancient form of rifle, isn't necessarily to enjoy the experience, but the reality is it extends your season. And so you're able to possibly harvest something at a greater time frame rather than just in one week. But there's this growing interest, and it's an incredible business, all surrounded around the muzzleloader. You see, the flintlock was the first reliable and inexpensive mechanism for firing a gun, used by guys like Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett. That's not what the guys look like who will be going out on Thursday, by the way, okay? But here's what you need to understand. In order to fire a flintload, flintlock muzzleloader, there has to be present essential components, but those essential components not only have to be present, they have to be working together. Gunpowder and a spark. Gunpowder and a spark. See, the basic goal of the flintlock is to create a spark that will ignite the gunpowder that is stored in the barrel to fire. That's the basic goal. And this simple system is actually the foundation of all modern firearms. So if you want to understand how modern rifles work, how modern firearms work, 
then you get a very good view of that by understanding the flintlock muzzle loader. In a similar way, as I was preparing this week, I thought, you know what? If we want to understand how to be, as followers of Jesus Christ, live effective lives as we await the return of our King, we need to go back to the Scriptures to understand some ancient ways. If we want to understand how, as followers of Jesus Christ, to live effectively while waiting for our King to return, we need to go back into the Scriptures regularly to understand some ancient ways. You see, just like the flintlock provides the best view to understanding modern rifles, I believe the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today, Zechariah chapter 4, also provides us with an excellent view to understand how to live effective, victorious lives while we wait for our King. And this morning as we go through that passage, we will discover together like the flintlock, there are essential components that not only need to be present, but need to be working together to produce the desired results we would like to see in our lives. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this beautiful fall day that you've given to us. Thank you for the opportunity to gather, to celebrate together your goodness to us. Lord, thank you for your word. And I pray now as we open it up, God, you would help me to present it in the way that you have convicted me this week and how you've ministered to me this week through this passage. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, help me to deliver that to my brothers and sisters here this morning so that we will leave today being strengthened and being encouraged for the mission that you have before us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting with us, this fall we've been going through a series in the book of Zechariah, the coming king. Last weekend we took a break from it, of course, to celebrate Thanksgiving. And I hope all of you had a good Thanksgiving. We had the privilege of heading up north to our farm for the weekend. And uh, here's all we did. We cut maple, we split maple trees, and we stacked maple wood. And uh, so that we would be warm in the winter and then also ready for the maple syrup scene. But it was a beautiful time of just being together as a family out in God's creation. But today we're going to get back into our series in Zechariah. So to just help us, let, I'm going to do some review just so that we can set the scene for what was going on at the time of the passage we're going to look at this morning. If you recall from the time we started this series, God's people have been freed from Babylonian captivity. And God used the Persians to do that. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, at that time granted permission for those in exile to return to Jerusalem. Not only so they could rebuild their homes and get back to their homeland, but he also granted this permission because God had a mission for them to accomplish. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1 is the book right after 2 Chronicles. And there we will discover what the mission was for why God rescued them and freed them to return to their homeland. Verse 1 of Ezra, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart. Notice this is all the Lord. To fulfill the Lord's word, the Lord moved the heart of Persia to make a proclamation throughout this, his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. The God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. 
And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are provided them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So they were rescued not only to go and resettle back in their homeland and get on with their life, but they were rescued for a mission to build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now this proclamation of freedom and this invitation to return home, I'm sure was very welcome news to God's people living in captivity. I can only imagine the joy that began to fill their mind and their hearts upon hearing this good news. And so, the first group of exiles, numbering 42,360 people, returned to Jerusalem. But whatever joy and anticipation they initially had when they heard this news, upon returning was very quickly dampened. When they arrived in Jerusalem and saw what had become of their homeland. Nehemiah describes it this way. The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress. They're in great distress and reproach. Why? Because the walls of Jerusalem are broken and its gates are burned with fire. In fact, Nehemiah says Jerusalem is desolate. What an overwhelming scenario to come home to. If you've been watching the news this week, similar to what many families are facing in the Florida panhandle, after Hurricane Michael blew through this past Wednesday. As great as the freedom was that God had orchestrated for them to return home and begin rebuilding their lives in his temple, it was overshadowed by the magnitude of the task in front of them. And over time, they became discouraged. They started to doubt whether God's plan was good and whether God could really take care of them. Mission erosion began. Mission erosion began. This morning I'm going to talk to you about preventing mission erosion. Mission was, is a specific assignment, a specific task. Erosion is when something begins to fall apart. And mission erosion had begun amongst God's people. Eventually they became ineffective in accomplishing God's plan for them. In fact, Nehemiah records that as a result of their lack of trust in God, the ongoing opposition from their neighbors related to their rebuilding project, and the indifference that began to creep in amongst the people, the scriptures said that they abandoned the mission. The work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. And for 16 years, God's people, who had been rescued for a mission, lived ineffective, defeated lives, failing to accomplish what they had been rescued to do. But as we heard in Josh's testimony this morning, praise God that we serve a God who is also a good, good father. Amen? Praise God, when I heard Joss' testimony this week, I was talking to him, and I know his family well. God extended his grace and the gift of faith to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, when he was a young boy. But then he journeyed away from the Lord, walking in disobedience to the Lord. But you know what was so beautiful when I was talking with him over the phone this week while he was at work? He said, you know what, I look back and I can see how God's grace kept me safe all the while on the journey, to the point where now in his 30s, he recognizes Jesus is not only my Savior, but he is also my Lord. 
We serve a God who is a good, good father. And when his children are ineffective because of lack of trust or fear or indifference, he never gives up on us. He never gives up on us. Instead, he graciously finds ways to get our attention in order to help us to turn our focus away from what is preventing us from moving forward back onto who he has saved us to be and do. And this is exactly what God did for this remnant of his people who found themselves in great distress and reproach, living ineffectively amongst the rubble of their homeland. So after 16 years, he commissioned two men, two prophets named Haggai and Zechariah, to stir up the people, to get on with the task of rebuilding the temple of God so that his presence and his glory could once again dwell among them and permeate to the nations around them. Even though their homeland looked desolate, there was a coming day that the Lord told his people through the prophet Zechariah when Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So he sent two men, Haggai, Zechariah. Haggai was gifted with the ability to preach a very strong, rebuking type of sermon. And his goal was basically to challenge the people about their lack of trust in God and challenge them about their indifference regarding this mission to rebuild the temple. He was used by God to initiate the revival. And then comes along Zechariah, who we are studying. And his job was to keep that revival going, keep stoking the fire, talk to my people about repentance, talk to them about spiritual renewal, so that they will accomplish the mission for which I've saved them to do. So in one night, God gives Zechariah eight visions. Eight visions, visions with very detailed imagery packed with meaning to encourage and to rally his people to accomplish what he had rescued them to do. Build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, when I read that, I thought, man, can you imagine? I'm sure all of us can relate to having a restless night's sleep. Right? We can all, we can all relate to that. Those nights when you just can't seem to fall into a deep sleep. Well, this was one of those nights for Zechariah. This was one of those nights. And this morning, as we look at this passage, you might be here, similar to how the people of God were feeling. You're in great distress. And the situation that God has permitted you to be in might be causing you to doubt whether you can truly trust God. Perhaps you're afraid. And because of that, you've become kind of indifferent to the mission which he saved you to do. I pray that as we look through Zechariah's fifth vision this morning in chapter 4, and there together we will discover the essential components that are needed to accomplish what we have been rescued to do, and that is to live for his glory and for his mission to make disciples. I pray that he will strengthen you. I pray that you will feel renewed in the mission that he has saved you to do. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4, and we'll look at the fifth vision that the angel gave to Zechariah in that night. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. 
Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. The fifth vision that Zechariah had. Sixteen years had passed with little progress. Opposition towards their rebuilding project from those in the community was increasing. And the question that was permeating their thoughts, affecting their motivation, and causing mission erosion to start was, is God truly able to care for me? And this morning we're going to look at three essential components that need to be present and working together for us to live victorious lives and to accomplish the mission he has saved us to do. But here's what I want you to understand. Sometimes we will declare God's word to one another, and maybe you're here in great distress, and you hear whoever's preaching give you three points. Go do this, this, this. And I'm afraid sometimes we think, well, I'm just going to flip the switch tomorrow, and those three things are going to be in place, and my situation I'm in is just going to completely change. I heard a pastor recently at a conference say something I really appreciated. He said this, don't try to be a disciple. We must train to be a disciple. We don't try to be a disciple. We must train ourselves to be a disciple. And so my prayer for myself and my prayer for you this morning is as I share these truths with you, you won't look at them as just, okay, I'm going to put those into practice tomorrow and bang, everything's going to be okay. No, these are truths that are helping us to run the race well. They're truths that are to help us train to become a victorious, effective disciple of Jesus Christ. And so the first essential component needed to prevent mission erosion is a resolute trust in God. A resolute trust in God. Resolute means resolved, unwavering, steadfast. This is the first essential component we need to live an effective life on mission for God. Psalms 56 verse 11a says, In God I trust and am not afraid. That's what a resolute trust in God looks like. In God I trust and am not afraid. Because God is a good, good father, he understood the condition of his children. And so the angel of the Lord asked Zechariah, we read it, what do you see? And Zechariah responds by describing this image of a solid gold lamp with seven lamps coming out of its main shaft. And each one of those lamps having a channel that joined them to this bowl that was above them. And on the right and the left of the bowl was an olive tree. What significance would that have had for a people in great distress? 
How would that have brought any meaning or comfort or encouragement to people in great distress? Well, we are first introduced to this kind of solid gold seven-branch lampstand in Exodus chapter 25. It was one of the items that God had instructed his people to make and place in the tabernacle after he had freed them from captivity in Egypt. So within the tabernacle was this lampstand, and it was situated in the holy place where it provided light for the priests to do their ministry. And God gave very specific instructions to keep it well supplied with pure olive oil so that the lamps may be kept burning. Basically, do not let this be extinguished. This lampstand was significant, not only because of its function to provide light for the priests to be able to do their service for the people, but because it was situated in the tabernacle. It was situated in the previous temple that they were about to rebuild. And the temple is what identified them as God's people, and that his presence was among them. Although the lampstand in Zechariah's vision is connected to this lampstand that was in the tabernacle in the previous temple, it was different, though. It had similarities, but it was different. And what was different about it was this bowl, this bowl that sat on top with two olive trees, one on the right and one on the left. What was the meaning of that? God wanted to portray for his people who were doubting whether he could be trusted. He wanted to portray for them that he would provide the continuous supply of what they needed. He would provide continuous supply of oil from the trees to the bowl and into the lamps. And notice, without any human effort. The lamps in the tabernacle, they had to be refilled by humans. But there's a day coming, he says, no, well, I'm going to supply all your needs. I'm the one who's going to sustain you. A beautiful picture of God's grace continually sustaining and empowering his people to be the light to the nations. You see, it mattered to God to dispel in the mind and the heart of his people the doubt regarding his sovereign, all-sufficient, limitless care for them. For who are they? Who are we? We are the apple of his eye. And brothers and sisters, may I encourage you this morning, if you find yourself in distress, God has revealed who he is to us. And he is a good, good father. And he can absolutely be trusted. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 13 says, I will put my trust in him. The first essential component to live effective lives while we wait for our king and to accomplish the mission he has saved us for is to have a resolute, unwavering trust in God. Secondly, the second essential component needed to prevent mission erosion is a resolute commitment to his word. A resolute commitment to his word. What does that look like? I think Psalms 119 verse 10 and 11 describes what that looks like so well. Listen to what says there. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When I type that note, that verse in my notes, I bolded because I am the one 
who has to have a resolute commitment to his word. Psalm 119, I seek you with all my heart. I have hidden. I have hidden. It's not my wife's responsibility. It's not my fellow staff's responsibility to hide God's word in my heart. It is my responsibility to hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Why is that so important? Because God sustains and empowers his children to fulfill the mission he has rescued us to do through his word. Through his word. The prophet here is... The project here to rebuild the temple and restore God's presence and kingship on earth was fueled by the prophetic ministry of two men, Haggai and Zechariah, whose job was to deliver God's word to his people. Now, certain scholars, there's kind of two thoughts on the olive trees within this vision. The first set of scholars see the two olive trees on either side of the bowl as representing these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Others see the two olive trees as representing Joshua, who was the high priest at that time, and Zerubbabel, who we read about in this vision. He was the governor of Judah at that time. So you have two schools of thought. However, I believe the central focus in this vision is on the role and the centrality and the primacy of God's word in the restoration of the community. The thought that it represents Haggai and Zechariah, who were the people who delivered God's word to the people, seems the best fit for me. In it, we see the key role God's word played in not only initiating the project, but sustaining it and enabling his people to move forward and be effective in their mission. You see, Zerubbabel, who was given the task to complete the mission, he faced two challenges. There were two challenges he faced. But here's what the Lord did in spite of those challenges. Verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. God sent his word. Then again, we see in verse 8, also the, the word of the Lord came to me. That's Zechariah speaking of himself. The primary purpose of this vision was for God's word to get to Zerubbabel through his prophet Zechariah so that he would be encouraged to get on with the mission that I've rescued you for. And not only that, I'm going to sustain you, I'm going to empower you so that you can be able to do what I have willed for you to do. The first problem he faced was a physical problem. In the vision, it's referred to a mountain, a mighty mountain. This was a problem that was physical in nature. The mighty mountain of rubble that was surrounding him in the ruins of Jerusalem. In spite of what was before him, what did God do? God sent his word to encourage and to sustain him. What seems like a mighty mountain will become level ground. I don't know what your mighty mountain is in front of you today. But he does. And here's his word for you. That mighty mountain, I have the power and the ability to make you stand on level ground. To stand on level ground. And you, Zerubbabel, will bring out the capstone, the chosen capstone representing the completion of the mission to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Wow. What a shot in the arm. God's word must have been to Zerubbabel. And we know that God cannot lie. His word is always guaranteed. That should infuse confidence and hope in us today. In the case of Zerubbabel, in spite of the great physical challenge he faced, 
God's word to him was Zerubbabel. No obstacle would be able to stop my word regarding the completion of the temple in your lifetime. The hands of Zerubbabel, the scripture says, have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. This is the word of the Lord to me, Zechariah said. So his first challenge he faced was physical. The second challenge he faced was a personal issue. A personnel issue really is how you should say it. And that was God's people. Go figure. God's people being a problem to one another. Something new, isn't it? Right? There were those who were discouraged amongst them. That this temple that's being rebuilt, it's so much more smaller and unimpressive compared to the one Solomon built. And so people became unenthusiastic about participating with the project that they had been rescued to do because they thought it's so small, so unglorious looking. And what a verse that says there, who dares despise the day of small things? Who dares despise the day of small things? When I read that verse, I thought to myself, oh Lord, help us at Calvary Baptist Church to not to despise the small things that God is pleased with. Last night I had the opportunity to stop by my parents' house. My brother and his wife were in town speaking at a missions conference in Newmarket this morning. And uh, Dad asked me what I was speaking on, so I shared with him. And I said, Dad, just remind me of the story. Remind me of the story. And so my dad told me the story of when him and my mom first went to the mission field. And back then, the country that they were serving in had given specific plots of land to churches so that they could build a church. Amazing. Wouldn't that be awesome? So at that time, the war started, and nothing was being done. The other missionaries in the agency that my parents worked for all came home to Canada. But my dad, and when I share this with you, you got to understand my father, nothing I share with you is to bring glory to my dad. But my dad had a resolute trust in God. And my dad had a resolute commitment to his word. And the Lord had told him, you don't go home. I brought you here to accomplish a mission. So the government sent to my father, who was the country coordinator, a letter saying, you're going to have to hand the property back. You guys have had it. You've done nothing with it. But my dad knew why he had been called to Africa, and there was something to be done with that property. So by faith, he went to the government official and said, we will have a payment for you within a month. We will be building within two months. But he had nothing. When I say he had nothing, by faith, my dad sold our only vehicle as a family. He sold it. Why? To pay for an airplane ticket so he could get to Canada and talk to local churches here in Canada about raising funds for what he knew God had already committed in his heart needed to be done. When he told me that last night, I was like, wow, there's a guy who had resolute trust in God. He had a resolute commitment to God's word and the mission for his life. But you know what else I remembered? And sometimes we forget this as pastors. What an amazing godly woman my mother was. She didn't question him. She didn't say, no, this is crazy. You're going to have me stay here in the war so you can go home to raise some funds for a project? She didn't. And I thought, you know what, God, thank you for a mother who also had resolute trust in you and a resolute trust and commitment to your word. So my dad came home. He went to head office. At that time, head office was in the Don Mills area off of Don Valley. He went into the director of the global missions committee there, and he said, uh, here's the deal. I've told the government we're going to start uh, building in two months. And they said, Glenn, we got no money. So my dad said, okay, 
all I'm asking permission, can I just go to three churches? Three churches. And the, my dad grew up in the Ottawa Valley from a very little home, little area. So he didn't know a lot of people. So he said, well, I'll go to the church in Renfrew. That's in the Ottawa Valley. Because he, he knew that. That's his homeland. Then I have a Bible school friend who's pastoring a church in Peterborough. I'll go to Peterborough, see if I can talk to them. And then I have a friend in Hamilton. I'll go and talk to him. And so he presented his proposal to the director of missions and the director of missions. And please understand, when I share this with you, I'm not slamming the director of missions or those churches. I'm just telling you the truth of what happened. You know, the director of missions' response to him was, Glenn, feel free to go to any of those churches. They give nothing to missions. Who dares despise the small things that God is pleased with? So my dad faithfully went. He went to those three churches. He got in to speak at two of them. The church in Hamilton, the pastor said, Glenn, we got our schedule, the pulpit's full. I, I don't have any opportunity for you to speak. But I'm free at lunch today. If you can make it to Hamilton and have lunch with me, share what you believe God's mission for you is, I'd love to hear about it. So my dad drove to Hamilton, had lunch with this pastor. To make a long story short, that one church in Hamilton funded over 90%, almost the whole project to build that Bible college in that church building. Not only that, he said, you know what, Glenn's so interesting? About a month ago, a family in our church came to us, a couple, Lauren and Joy Davies. I remember them as a kid. He was a terrible driver. I was so scared to travel in the truck with him. <laughs> Lauren, one time he got stopped by the police to ask for his license. He gave them a Canadian tire card. Believe it or not, it's Africa. They let him go, right? So here's the deal, though. Lauren and Joy Davies go to this pastor in Hamilton and say, he was a builder, a contractor. He says, you know what? I feel the Lord laying on our heart that he wants us to go somewhere and build for him. I don't know where it is. Will you pray with us? And that one church funded over 90% of that project. They not only did they sent Lauren and Joy as their full-time missionaries, fully funded from that one church until the project in Glenora was completed. Completed. Never despise small things. Never despise small things. And you know what's so exciting? I asked my dad last night. That Bible college now is over 40 years. They've been ministering, training, equipping pastors to go on mission in that country to make disciples. So may God help us to never despise small things. He has a plan that is so much bigger than what we know. So what does God do to Zerubbabel? Here all these people are complaining and grumbling. They think this is so small and puny. What does he do? He sends them his word. He sends them an encouraging word to sustain and empower him in the midst of their indifference and grumbling. Through his word, he reminds Zerubbabel that he is pleased with his work and that his all-knowing, sufficient, limitless care is overseeing it. The seven eyes of the Lord. I am overseeing it, Zerubbabel. I see your obedient effort, and I will take pleasure in the completion of the mission I have asked you to do. The mountain of opposition to God's work, both practical and personal, physical and with people, shall become level ground, Zerubbabel. They cannot hinder the progress of my will. You know, when I thought about how God's word sustains and empowers us to glorify him and to live effectively on mission with him, I couldn't help but think about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 4, it says he was led out into the wilderness where he was going to be tested by Satan. And if you read that passage of Scripture, what did he rely on to sustain him and to empower him during the testing? The Scriptures. 
Everything that Satan threw in front of him, he said, the scriptures, it is written, it is written, it is written. So if the word is so vital to our Savior, I think it's really important for us to have a resolute commitment to his word. Mission erosion starts when we stop taking God's word seriously. And here at Calvary Baptist Church, if you've been here long enough, when we say take God's word seriously, what we mean by that is not only knowing it, but applying it. Applying it. For 16 years, they knew what God's word was. And then all of a sudden, one guy started to apply it, and things started to change. Edmund Chan, who we had at our missions conference last year, we were at a conference last week as pastors, said this statement, and it's stuck in my head. Truth does not change lives, but truth applied changes lives. Are you committed, resolute commitment to his word, not only to know it, but to apply it? Paul encourages us in 2 Timothy chapter 13, verses 14 to 17, but as for you, continue. You hear that word? Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy, think of Josh this morning, how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, all of God's word is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that, why? So that the servant of God may thoroughly be equipped for every good work. God's word, it sustains and empowers us to do the mission. So we have a resolute trust in God. We have a resolute commitment to his word. And finally, the final component that is necessary to prevent mission erosion in our lives is a resolute dependence on his power within us. A resolute dependence on his power. What did the Lord say to Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel, you are going to accomplish this, all that I have told you, but... Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God's word came to Zerubbabel at the right time to not only encourage him, but to also remind him of where the power is going to come from to accomplish this mission. Neither human might nor physical stamina would be sufficient to complete the mission he had been rescued to do. Only the continual flow of power from the Holy Spirit is what will be enable you, Zerubbabel, to carry out this task and allow Israel to be a light again to the world. For Zechariah, the great work of restoration was fueled and accomplished because of these two key components, God's Word and His Spirit, present and working together. Gunpowder, spark, present, working together. God's word and God's spirit working together. And as a result, because of these two essential components, his word and his spirit being present and working together in Zerubbabel's life, he was able to complete in four years what others could not in 16 and the rejoicing sound of God bless it, God bless it, that we read in the vision upon the completion revealed to his people that they will recognize the sustaining power to complete this mission could only be attributed to God, 
Not their own abilities, not their own strength or national might, for they had none of that. The Spirit, brothers and sisters, reveals His Word to us so that we can understand it, but then also gives us the power to be able to apply it. I read a verse yesterday that I've read before, but in this context, it just it made this point so clear to me. Chapter 1 of verse 4, where it talks about Jesus being led to be tested. Listen to the verse. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. This, brothers and sisters, is a beautiful picture of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Complete surrender, complete dependence on the Spirit. If you and I want to experience more the leading of the Spirit, experience more His presence in our lives, we are going to need to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life, and we are going to need to depend on His strength, not our own might. At salvation, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We have all of Him. The question is, does He have all of us? And that's why Josh could testify this morning over the last couple of years he is starting to sense and experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life because he is now surrendering to Jesus, not only as his Savior, but also as his Lord. A resolute trust in God, a resolute commitment to his word, and a resolute commitment to relying on his power within us. Mission erosion starts when we stop depending on the Spirit's power within us. As we close, just like the people back then, the message of Zechariah 4 and the fifth vision is greatly needed in our lives today. Calling us back to these core components, these core essential ingredients needed to live effectively on mission with him. Trusting God, staying committed to his word, depending on his spirit. If we do that, we will accomplish the mission he has rescued us for. 2 Corinthians 5.20, that is to bring glory to him and to be busy about his mission. We are called ambassadors, ambassadors for him. We are to be imploring people on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. We have been saved for his glory. We have been saved for his mission to make disciples. The New Testament makes it clear that the impact of the gospel on the Roman world was not due to leadership skills of great visionaries or speaking abilities of great speakers, but rather to the power of the Spirit as he worked through the weakness of humanity. Brothers and sisters, we need to be very careful to fight the temptation to look to all kinds of other good sources for guiding us in our mission to be ambassadors and disciple makers rather than always going first to the one who has promised to build his church by storming the very gates of hell. Just like the growing interest amongst outdoors people to return to using the flintlock muzzleloader, I believe God's message for us today is that as disciples of Jesus Christ, there needs to be a continuing, growing interest 
to return to these ancient ways. These ancient ways, a resolute trust in God, a resolute commitment to his word, and a resolute dependence to the power of his spirit within us to accomplish the mission we have been saved to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for the gift of your spirit who helps us to understand your word, but not just understand your word, to be able to apply your word so that we will fulfill the mission you have saved us to be. God, you have given us everything we need for godliness and right living. And so, God, I pray for us this morning that we will hear this message that you gave your servant Zechariah to deliver to Zerubbabel during a time when his people were in great distress. God, I pray that if we are guilty of mission erosion, if we are not glorifying you, if we are not making disciples, then God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. And I pray that we will return to these ancient ways. Thank you that you said you will build your church. Glory and honor and praise is all yours. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning, and thank you for your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. That is great news. And if you're here this morning in great distress, that should be a shot in the arm for you. That is God's word to us this morning. The same power lives in us. Haggai was to start the revival. Listen to the words God gave him to deliver related to this project. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now, be strong. Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says in a little while. I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The gift of his word and his spirit are available to everyone in Christ Jesus. And he's given us these gifts that we might grow to maturity and complete our mission. And as one author correctly put it, word, Without spirit, we dry up. Spirit, without word, we blow up. Word and spirit, we grow up. May God help us this week to return to these ancient ways and grow up in Christ Jesus. God bless you. If you're here in great distress and you just need someone to pray with you, we would love to pray with you. Please come and see us afterwards. We'll see you back at 6 o'clock tonight for our discipling communities.